All right, welcome to Rekindling's Fireside Chats. This is episode three that we're doing in this series. Uh, my name is Shannon Kirkpatrick. I'm the uh, founder of Rekindling, and I'll be facilitating these discussions. And my name is Zach Rios, and I've helped out with a lot of these different podcasts and am a graduate student. I'm Tori Doty. I've been on a couple of the Unpacking series podcasts. This is my first Fireside Chat, but I'm glad to be here. And I'm Craig DeLuca, and I've also been on several of the unpackings, and so far all the fireside all the, chats. Yeah. So if this is your first uh, fireside chat that you're listening to, and you've listened to the other seasons that we've done, all the other seasons were heavily mapped out ahead of time. We had the scripts, we had all the research done. They were, you know, hour and a half, two hours, three hours long, etc. And so we wanted, we'll be starting season four uh, later this year in 2019. Um, so we decided in the interim to do these fireside chats and we're purposely making these much more casual, much more laid back. So we don't have a script. It's more free flowing. One of my, one of my goals of the fireside chats is just for, to have, as the listeners are listening, you got different people, different voices, uh, different perspectives. And I want to show that like unity in the midst of diversity, that, that Christians can have different takes on things and we can still be unified. Now, now if those, you know, if, if two Christians agree on the same thing, great. If they have differing thoughts on something, but the thoughts are compatible, okay, great. You know, a little harder, but still mm -hmm. good. If it's opposite, then typically they both can't be true. But what can the Christians do in the meanwhile of, listen, we both can't be right on this issue because we actually believe opposite terminology here. Um, but we can't, we don't, we don't need to hate each other, right? We don't need to fight each other. So what can we do in unity as we disagree on those things, right? So anyway, so in the first two episodes, we talked about kind of the psychology of why people have differing perspectives and paradigms on theology, philosophy, politics, etc. And we just talked a little bit about like observations we've made of why people have different, um, paradigms and, and what to do with that, etc. So now as we move into episode three here, um, and this is probably going to be two episodes, maybe three. We'll see how long this goes. But this little topic is playing off of why people have differing perspectives. And so what this one is, is us just discussing some of our theologies or doctrines or beliefs that are either not traditional or they're fringe. Or what was the other way that I said? Oh, that, that, that there's still a lot of debate over. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just our chance just to, you know, because a lot of times when you do a class, it's on certain topics, and you never get to talk about some other things that you wanted to talk about. Um, maybe because they're not as important, or there's different reasons for that. But this is a chance for us just to kind of talk this stuff out. So the first thing, so so we're just gonna and we're gonna say we'll do this for a couple of episodes, and we we talked ahead of time a little bit. Each of us have an idea of, of something we're gonna present on a belief that we have and why we have it, you know, et cetera. Uh, and by the way, if this is your first time listening. All of us here are Christians. We all believe that Jesus is Lord. We all believe the Bible is true. Um, so we do have that paradigm. Um, and we've already discussed that in other seasons and episodes, why we hold to that. Uh, but, I'll, but I'll throw that out there. Um, and so if, as we share a belief, you're going to hear us use Scripture to back up why we believe that. And then others may question that interpretation of Scripture, right? But what we're all coming from a Scripture perspective there. Um, anyways, so before we, get, we, we uh, start listing some of those out, the first thing I want to say is, there's a, a, a cool way to kind of see theology as, as uh, tiers. So primary tier, secondary tier, and tertiary tier. And, and the way that I break it up, and we can discuss this a little bit, um, primary tier would be salvific, meaning that if you 
if you're going to have eternal life in the eternal kingdom of heaven, you actually have to hold these beliefs. And if you don't hold these beliefs, it, does, it means that you're not a Christian. That would be the primary tier. I personally believe there's only one or two, maybe three items on that primary tier where you'll see other like, um, not denominations that might have eight or 12, right? Um, anyways, and then second, second tier theology, uh, are, are beliefs and doctrines and theologies that are super, super important. They have major implications on what, what you believe or don't believe, etc. Um, and they play very much into the Christian living, but they're not salvific. And what that means is that if, if you and I hold to different ones on the second tier, but we still hold to the same ones on the primary tier, we're both homeward bound. And then we'll find out on the other side if both of us were wrong or one was right, one was wrong, right, whatever. Um, and so the secondary tier is huge. Most theology and doctrines will fit into that secondary tier. And by the way, we would say there's also degrees to that secondary tier. So you may have um, certain theologies or beliefs that you, that, you, that you would say, all right, I don't think it's technically salvific, but it's like right at the border um, on, on top of that secondary tier, mm-hmm. almost moving into primary. Or maybe I keep going back and forth. I got one foot in primary, one foot in secondary. I can't decide, right? Um, where stuff like further down in that secondary tier, um, are, you know that's not salvific and they're just there. And then tertiary tier would be more of the kind of just fun things that we just it's, it's more conjecture mm-hmm. we don't really know for sure like for example throughout church history there were there was a lot of debates in, among scholars in church history one of the raging debates and i don't remember when this was i want to say it was in medieval times but one of the raging debates was how many angels could fit on the pin of a needle the pinhead of a needle and they had major debates on this that's a tertiary tier thing right um i believe like are there pets in heaven Whatever, whether you believe to that or not, I think that's a tertiary tier thing. That doesn't really have any implications in your daily living. It's definitely not salvific, right? So I wanted to, I wanted to throw that out there. And, and so as, as we're bringing up our little fringe or non-traditional theologies, um, by definition, they won't be at the primary tier because then that would be like you're talking about heresy or whatever. But you'll find some of these that we're going to discuss this episode and other episodes. Some will be in our secondary tier and some will be tertiary, third tier, you know, et cetera. Anyways, well, um, any any thoughts you would like to add to this concept, this idea of these three tiers? Uh, maybe just that um, I feel like, especially with secondary and third, um, possibly where you're at the region in the, in the world, um, it could be different where we would see something as a third tier where if you oh, went yeah. across seas, um, especially where spiritual warfare or something was way more prevalent that mm. they might see something as a second tier that we would see as a third. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, um, we also talked beforehand about there'll be certain things that I think are secondary tier that others put primary tier. How do we, how do we discern whether something's a Cause you know, cause the first question is how do we discern whether it's a primary, secondary, tertiary? And then once you figure that out, then what is the right answer? Right. Um, and that, what is the right answer is kind of what these point, these next couple episodes are. But how would technically what, what do you feel is the best approach to take in determining or discerning is discerning is probably even a better word than determining discerning whether something's primary, secondary or tertiary. I have my thoughts, but I wanted to open up to you guys first. I think for me, I would say like the primary ones, like you said, that salvific, like is this determining salvation? So that is like, I guess, a little easier to determine than maybe second tier or third tier. But how, so how do you know if something's salvific? I don't, I don't know. 
how I don't know how like I don't have a checklist necessarily. Yeah. In my head, it's a little easier to figure out than like if it fits in the second mm-hmm. tier or the third tier, because that's where like more nuances come in, I mm-hmm. think, to me. But I would say like if if scripture says like this is required for salvation, yeah. that is a salvific issue. That would be in the primary tier, but that's the only thing I would place there. Right. So if that, it's like clearly explained in scripture that that's required. That's mine. If that verse or that passage directly connects that belief with eternal life, salvation, entry into the kingdom, any one of those type terminologies, then it is salvific. That's the only one that I can do as a clear cut. Some may argue, all right, so the passage doesn't mention heaven or eternal life Mm -hmm. or salvation or maybe forgiveness of sins, but it mentions this and then that's connected to those concepts. So they have one jump. I'm open for that, yeah. but I'm also a little bit red- reticent yeah. to make that jump. Right. I'd rather have the passage. So so for me, if the passage specifically mentions one of those type of phrases, that's what I would hold. Would you guys add to that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I, I do think one thing to keep in mind with that is um, because you just said you have a pretty short list of what's actually in that first tier. And I think depending on what's also in the context, it can be easier to start adding more things. Um, Because like I'm I'm thinking of, for example, I know that um, some people would hold to you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Like that's one of the things that uh, is necessary because that typically in the New Testament is in the context of those sorts of passages. And so I, I think that the argument can be made and has been made that baptism is salvific because look it's right in the verse it's right in the next verse um and so it's i I do agree that that's the way that we should at least primarily be trying to figure out what's salvific or not but that we also need to realize that it's not as easy to say the bible clearly says as we'd like to think that it does a lot of times yeah so baptism isn't one of the topics that we're gonna bring it right now We, we may eventually do it maybe realize that we have to um because like the one passage says that if you're born of water and the spirit, and so some equate born of water means baptism. Others don't equate that. Um, you also have the thief on the cross that was never baptized but has eternal life. So, 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 so baptism for me, I put at towards the top of the second tier. But I really do understand the argument of putting it primary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if enough, if any of us are researched enough in that to to discuss it. Um, but yeah, so 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 that shows you right there. We would all agree that it needs to be tied to salvific stuff, and but that is still not clear cut. And I I know we're not going hardcore on this topic, but in First Corinthians it says, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom, but with eloquence, lest Christ be emptied of His power." So right there, it's saying I'm not being sent to baptize; I'm sending to, to preach. So now, I, okay, I agree with you. But what if somebody said? Right, but Paul's just saying, like, that doesn't tell me that baptism is not required for salvation. That just tells me that Paul wasn't worried about the baptism requirement for salvation. He was he was focused on other stuff. It's amazing. Again, I, I think you and I probably agree on this, but it was amazing how people, you know, yeah. were going to come from Right, yeah. No, I, I don't, I mean, I'd have to sit and think about an yeah. argument for that. But to, I don't know. To me, if, if that was part of it, he would have been like, well, God sent me to do both because that's the salvation. Right. What if no one comes behind me? Right. Then right. you're not in, and I told told you about Christ, you know. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, and Ghost is with us too. So, um, 
yeah, th- these can be some fun conversations. And and that's part of the thing that I've really learned as I've just grown as a believer is because I gr- grew up in an environment where it was the Bible clearly says on everything. Um, like there isn't hardly anything that the Bible doesn't clearly teach on. And then just through study and meeting people that hold to positions different than mine, it's amazing how many things the Bible doesn't actually clearly say one way or the other. Like mm-hmm. there really is this spectrum of possibility and um it's frustrating at times because it's like well just tell us just yeah um sometimes i wish the bible was just a systematic theology that you could just hand someone like here's the textbook on what to believe but that is not at all (laughs) what scripture actually contains yeah i think all four of us have had times in the last couple years where we used to believe this but then we were coming across repeated passages and we're like uh or even one passage sometimes and then we have to kind of change it. And so this goes back to Zach. You always talk about, you know, you hold your theology or your beliefs in, in your hand, semi-cupped, so not tightly grasped because we're all human. We all make mistakes and mm-hmm. have, have bad theology, um, but not super loose where it just goes with the wind. Yeah. Uh, and that middle ground is really helpful. So, um, all right, cool. So with, with that in mind, let's go ahead and, and get into some of the topics. So what's the first one that we're going to do? I think the first one we were going to talk about was the age of the earth. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of different, because obviously we live in a science-driven culture, mm-hmm. um, and so the Darwin's ideas of evolution have really influenced just American culture and how we think about science, and it's more complicated Western than that. Culture, but yeah, yeah. Um, but just the idea that Genesis one teaches that the Earth was created by God verbally as He spoke it into existence, and it wasn't created um, a long time ago. Well, that's relative, but it wasn't create um, just the position that I hold to that the Bible teaches a young earth creation where God directly created the different families of animals that have um, multiplied according to their kind. So it's not starting from one type of animal and then all of them show up. Um, so this is a two part young earth versus old yeah. earth and also like evolution versus distinct species from the beginning. Yeah. So real quick, we all know the two main camps on this is either you're more of the young earth, i.e. somewhere in the last six to 10,000 years mm-hmm. based on ages of people in the Bible, et cetera. Um, and then also distinct species from the get go based on the Genesis verse uh, to their kinds. Yeah. And then you would have that versus the camp of old earth evolution, which could be that that the earth and this is, you know, we're still about believers. Believers that believe that God created everything, but he created over millions or billions of years. Mm -hmm. um, And he actually used evolution as part of the creation process. Um, And then so they would hold the Genesis one as more figurative. Those are the two main camps. Have you guys heard of like a third or fourth camp on that? I I, off the top of my head, I don't know of any other ones. I I know that there's a... Oh, gap theory. Yeah, gap theory is the one that there's a gap of time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Um, where basically evolution fits in that gap is more or less my recollection of what that is. So I'm not sure how distinct that is from um, like a God using evolution type perspective, but I know that that is normally one that's mentioned. I know with gap theory, there's the mindset that um, that gap was actually not necessarily evolution, but back when the angels fell Mm -hmm. and it was just a whole different, earth and 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 then after that god re-put it back together okay to what we have now in a young earth type way yeah the the gap theorists that i know would still not hold to evolution but i'm I'm guessing that there are gap theorists that do hold to evolution so there's sub sub camps within that 
I also know I read I read one. This was a Jewish scholar. His theory was kind of evolution with cavemen, Neanderthals, that kind of deal, and that Adam was the first human that God put a soul into. Um, and he made the argument that there was this evolution of man. And then when you got to the more homo sapiens, um, the first one was Adam and God breathed a soul into Adam. And so he became the first man with a soul. Um, I don't hold to that, but I thought it was, I never heard of that until I, I read his book. Um, by the way, his note, his, his take on the age of the earth, uh, is it's both young and old and he gets into all this, uh, mathematical formulas that lost me. But you know how, like. He talks about perspective and where, and, and where, like, like, you know, if, if, if there's somebody standing on a hill in the distance, I can put my hand up and, and they're literally like an inch tall, mm-hmm. but they're not really an inch tall. They're six feet tall. They look an inch from where I'm at. So he does all this math and he shows that if you were um, standing on earth and you're trying to measure the speed of light and the planets moving away from each other, et cetera, it makes very much math- mathematical sense that you would calculate billions of years. But then he says, if you were actually sitting on the outskirts of the universe, and I think he holds to a universe that's expanding, but if you were to sit on the outskirts and do the same mathematical equations, the math changes because you're coming from a different perspective, and the math actually comes out to less than 10,000 years. So, so his take on it is when God created it, from God's perspective, it was less than 10,000 years, why you see six days, etc. But then man, from our perspective, measuring <laughs> outwards off Earth, we calculate 10,000. So it just depends on your perspective was his argument, which I thought was really interesting. Do you remember what that was called, his book? Um, no. I... I, I it won't help you listeners in the podcast. I'll find <laughs> out afterwards yeah. and let you know, but yeah. Um, anyways, so, so let's do this real quick. So you're, you're young earth, mm-hmm. um, microevolution, not macroevolution. Craig. Craig. Oh uh, yeah. I'm young earth microevolution. Um, and to go on top of his, one of the reasons that it's easy for me is because of in Exodus, mm-hmm. when God gives Moses the law, he tells him I made earth in six days and rested on the seventh. So to me, he was confirming to Moses a literal week mm-hmm. and to Moses understanding. Yeah. Tori, what are you? Yeah, I definitely right now I haven't researched it a ton. Um, so I haven't like looked into why I believe what I believe I hold to young earth microevolution because that's what I was taught growing mm-hmm. up. And that was just what I was supposed to believe. So right now <laughs> that's what I hold to, but I yeah. don't know what I would hold it to if I like looked into yep. it more. And so I'm also young earth microevolution and, it, and, and I was taught that growing up, but then I went ahead in my early thirties, decided to question all that just to see yeah. and did a bunch of research and read, um, James Perloff's, uh, tornado in a junkyard, bunch of, bu- there's, there's a ton of books out there of uh, fire in the equations by Kitty Ferguson, which is not even a religious book. It's a science book. Um, but really have concluded. And then obviously looking at the passages. So Craig brings up to me, the key point as far as scripturally, all this goes, the debate always revolves around Genesis 1 and 2, um, and everybody always tries to argue, is this figurative or literal, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yom, the Hebrew word for day, can also mean epic or long age. And so they say it could just be six epics or six long ages, could be six literal days. And they go back and forth on it. And, and, and if I'm being totally honest, I don't know if one can conclusively say one or the other based on Genesis 1 and 2 alone. But then when I first came across Exodus 20, where he says, as I created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, so shall you work six days and rest on the seventh. I'm with Craig. I'm like, okay, done. Yeah. And for me personally, one of the, um, with the Hebrew word yom and its flexibility, one thing that Genesis does include that 
for me is a strong argument for it being a literal 24 hour period is it in it says morning and evening was the first day Mm -hmm. and so it says it has the word yom day which can mean a long time or not a long time but then it also for each day includes morning and evening and so that it's obviously not like oh that's the answer but that is another weight to it yeah yeah another little note i learned this from chuck missler on evening and morning the hebrew words are erev and boker um and another they do mean evening and morning they're like core root words are rooted in the idea of chaos and order and Hmm. so the way missler i think missler is young earth uh yeah i think so yeah Oh, he was. He passed yeah, away. he was. Um, well, I guess he still is wherever he is, right? Um, Unless he found out something Which is whole discussion different. we're getting yeah. into what happens when you die. <laughs> um, oh, that'd be another one, actually, what happens when you die. We'll bring that up, too. But anyways, um, he said, so the way he reads the Genesis account is there was chaos and there was order the first day. There was chaos, there was order hmm. the second day. He still holds to the evening and morning, but he also says there's this underlying tone that God was, like everything kind of was chaotic and the God was putting order to it as he went, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, all right, so that's, well, let's stop there with that one. Um, that's actually one that we're all in, in agreement on. Um, and, we got, and, and science, by the, way, the one thing I'll also say with science is it, when it comes to like carbon dating and that kind of deal, there's actually always assumptions made. Now, there's assumptions made in Scripture too. Um, but there's assumptions made that the rate of the carbon decay is always the same. It, it hasn't changed as long as we've been recording it in the last 100, 150 years, but we don't know what it was 800 years ago or 1,500 years ago. So there's always just certain assumptions, so it's not like you know cold heart, cases closed kind of deal. Uh, one thing I wanted to say, just because it yeah. sounds like everyone here grew up in a young earth perspective, I did not. Okay. Um, we were never taught about it, so I went through school. And I believed evolution, and I believed uh, the dinosaurs were billions, and actually fascinated by billions of years. And it wasn't until, I think, like, towards my senior year of high school where I found creation science and, like, dove in hardcore yeah. and totally changed. Yeah. Because I was always trying to fit evolution and old Earth into Genesis and didn't know how to do it. Yep. Hmm. And then that's what changed yeah. my perspective. So even right there, we've got... You always Tori always grew up with it never really researched it just took it I grew up with it but then I wanted to test it read the books to hold to the same conclusion you came up differently yeah we just, um, I just wasn't taught yeah the reasons really cool. for thinking young earth so yeah all right so that's just so you can see we're just doing these kind of briefly um, just a bunch of these so what was the second one we wanted to bring up the second one we wanted to bring up this time is just the idea that um, God has decided although he has the ability to do um, a vast majority of things we have talked about because we've talked about God's on omnipotence and um, the idea that he can do anything is what's mm-hmm. commonly said. Um, and we've kind of clarified that to be, he can do anything that's in accordance with his nature. Um, and mm-hmm. so that is one little caveat yeah. um, that's worth putting out there. Not the actual point that we were getting at, but um, it's also interesting just as I've been looking through scripture and hearing some uh, some pastors and one pastor specifically talk about how God's actually limited himself in the actions that he does based off of human involvement. And so he's decided, although he does have the ability to do um, incredible things and all these things, and he does, um, that at least at times he decides to not do things unless people are actually doing their part and so he tasks them with it yeah and so he actually shares responsibility with other people which is just a really fascinating idea um it's robert morris is the pastor that i i've heard him talk about it a couple different Mm -hmm. times 
Um, and it's just really interesting that just uh, he's making the point that God has decided to partner with humanity in order to accomplish things on earth. And that's just the way that he is set up. Say that again. Um, God's decided to partner with humanity on earth in order to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that um, I, I have friends that have taken issue with uh, this pastor when he's came and spoke because, no, God, uh, if, if you hold to God being more deterministic, this pushes up against that a lot, <laughs> um, to say the least. Um, but it, it really is just a fascinating idea that through scripture, this actually can be seen. And so a couple, um, if I can look through my notes quick, a couple quick examples is, um, do, 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 do. well, he's looking that yeah. up. What would some of the camps be? Let's, let's identify some of the camps on this issue. So one camp is that God partners with humans to get stuff done. What would another camp be? Think, think spectrum. We can probably come up with four or five. Um, like God has determined everything, and so he he picks everything as it goes, and we don't really have a say. Yeah. So so the extreme camp would be God determines and does, and then the uh, the, the the camp next to that coming in would be God determines it, and then he tasks man with it, but he kind of like programs man to do it. Um, and then the next little campaign would be God determines it and he doesn't program man, but he strongly influences to such degree that they can't resist it. It's a foregone conclusion that they're going to do it. Then you would probably move to this, uh, well, probably a combo of the partnership. And so, so, so I want you to clarify Zach where you're at with this. Like what, what happens if man, so, so God partners with man Mm -hmm. and God tasks them to, he's going to do some of it and and they're going to do others of it. And then if they don't do it, does he step in and do it? Or does he not do it because they didn't do it? That, that task was on them. Um, I would hold to that he doesn't do it. Yeah. Because um, like one example is with Moses in, at the burning bush, God saying, hey, Moses, you need to go and you need to talk to Pharaoh to say, release my people and then I'm going to release them and we're going to like, yeah. and that's going to happen. And Moses goes through all of his excuses and he's like, I, and he eventually just gets to the point where he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God says, okay, if you're not going to do it, then Aaron's going to do it. And so God didn't say, okay, so you're not going to do it, so I'll just go and do it. That's fine. He found a different person to do it. Um, And so, and there's also a passage, and I can't remember off the top of my head where it is, but it talks about our prayers can actually hasten the day of the Lord, where um, if we're we're praying and asking God to come, he actually could come sooner. Mm. Um, and there's a passage in the gospels where, um, I think it's Mark six, Jesus couldn't do miracles in the area where he was because of the unbelief of the people there. And so, so God, so at least the incarnated Jesus, but maybe even God as a whole can be limited by the choices that man makes. Yeah. So you can see where people can push back on that, but yeah, keep going. Um, and then. Yeah, and so this is Jesus again saying, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Um, and so there, there's a couple different examples of Jesus where he's saying, since you didn't do this, then I'm not going to do this. Um, and then there are some also yep. some examples in the Old Testament of that. So one way to clarify this would be, let's do three meta camps. And the three meta camps is God does it all, 
God partners with humans to do it together, man does it all. And then within those three meta camps, there's all these sub camps Mm -hmm. that get into the nuances and details. So, for example, in the partnership one, I would say it's a combo of there's certain things that God does, certain things that he tasks us with that if we don't do it, he then covers it. And then other things that he tasks us with. And if we don't do it, it doesn't get done. Right. But there's all. So you have a whole spectrum of stuff there. But what uh, Craig, what are your thoughts? Oh, I agree that God that God partners with us. I do. I believe generally, yeah. If He tasks man to do it, and they don't, He'll either find someone else that's willing. Or, I mean, I feel like there's probably things that He can't not let happen, so that He would step in. Um, I just I don't know that that would be the common thing for Him to do. Um, so the, the way that we're vo- go ahead. I was just going to say another verse to kind of back up is uh, in Second Chronicles, and it's the. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will hear their land. So there's a lot of ifs. Mm-hmm. If you do this, I'll do this. And this, Tori, this brings up conditionality. I know you've started to do a little research on the ifs of the Bible. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, we see like, I mean, there are thousands of verses, more than a thousand. I don't know if it's 2,000, but like I think I think if you add verses. up like if, whether, oh, yeah, et cetera, yeah, yeah. It, uh, therefore. It was like 5,000 yeah, 5, yeah. in scripture. So there, it's all over. Mm-hmm. Like, if you do this, then this will happen. Um, so there's always the argument that that is a, like, just so we think we have control. Like, mm-hmm. if you do this, then this will happen. But really, it was determined all along. Um, but I hold to, there's definitely some sort of partnership but this topic as a whole is just something that my brain can't quite comprehend yet and I've tried to wrestle through a lot of those verses and instances in scripture where we see like prayer changing the course of action or like hastening the day of the Lord like that I just can't wrap my brain around so that third camp of man does it all it'd be hard to argue that with a biblical foundation yeah because you see the Bible saying there's a God who's creating all these things, doing all these things. So it seems to be hard to be that one. So see, most Christians would hold to one of the other two meta camps. Um, And you're going to see Christians all, you know, in that. And of course, all the sub camps. It's so interesting, those verses that you got. First of all, just the fact that there's over 5,000 conditional statements tells you right there, it's more complex than we realize. Mm -hmm. Why would there be so many conditional statements? And some, by the way, some of those are like one person, one human talking to another human. Right. But a good chunk of them are divine ifs, yeah. like God actually stating this. And so if there's so many of these ifs and what weathers and therefores and conditionalities, but everything's already predetermined, it would seem that you wouldn't need that kind of language. But that language is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And that and the, the frequency that we see it, mm-hmm. that seems the like volume. overkill in a sense if it's not actually a conditional statement. So what happens is, you know, we've all gotten uncomfortable before where we've always held to something and we started getting pushed back from Scripture. Like, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't believe that. Um you can see where there's certain people who are more in the deterministic sense that God causes everything or he orchestrates everything and there's no way around that. Mm-hmm. This idea that God partners with humans takes a risk mm-hmm. tasking humans that may, may not only may not do it, usually don't do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it can really brush up against them with this idea that God's not in control. And I don't think any of us here believe that God's not in control. So how, how do you reconcile that we believe God is in control of everything still with all these conditionalities and risks? 
I think one of the main ways is I don't necessarily see that big of a divide between it. Mm-hmm. Um, just with the way it really does seem that God has orchestrated or how God has set up the way this um, prologue, this world works. It really does seem that giving humans the ability to make decisions is the way that God has just set up things to be. And so I don't think that it actually causes that much of a discrepancy with um, like limit. It it does limit God in a sense. Um, well, it's God limiting himself. Yeah. And, and that's the thing yeah. that since he's chosen to limit himself, then it's not like I'm taking away God's ability to do something because he it's the other way around. He gave me the ability to impact um, to potentially impact what's going on. Yeah. And so I don't think that that causes as much of a problem just within my own theological framework as I know it does from someone that's coming from a mm-hmm. different background. Yeah. Um, so, Craig, were you going to say something? No, just that it doesn't bother me either because God, God determined everything and he determined he was going to use man. And so it's not like it's out of his control because that was the control he put in. Right, it wasn't like man said, "Hey, by the way, exactly. we're going to do this." Yeah. yeah. So, so I, all four of us are in that middle camp of partnership. Maybe some of the nuances we would disagree on, but but we're all in that middle camp. Think of the implication of this. If this is true, we all believe it is. What what does that tell us about God, and 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 kind of what He's up to and what He's doing and why? I mean, it tells us several things. But what's one of the things that tells you about God if it's true that He's taking these risks, partnering with humans, some of the stuff not always working out. Real quick, by the way, too, we got, this is another whole discussion with the will of God, but just so you know, the listeners, we're in the process of doing this Know Thy God, which all four of us are, are part of that, and we got, or we're doing, a, yeah, Know Thy God uh, research. Um, we got into the will of God, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll do a whole episode on this at some point, probably season four, um, but we talked about there's actually different things that the will of God refers to or means, and one of the things we talked about is there are some verses that talk about God's plans will not be thwarted, but then we see these like conditionalities and risks and, mm-hmm. and like he, he wants something to happen, doesn't happen. And so we realize that his plans aren't thwarted, but his desires can be. And so we talked about this plan where he does a condition, a conditional if, if he, so the plan is for you guys to choose. And if you choose a great, this was going to happen. If you choose B bad, this was going to happen. And then let's say they choose B. His plan wasn't thwarted because the plan was to give the choice to man. His desire was thwarted because what he wanted, he wanted them to choose A and they chose mm-hmm. B. So it just shows you that I think God's more flexible than we realize. Um, so let's just stop there. <laughs> right. So that, that's it. What, you know, again, we're intentionally making these kind of shorter. And so we, we discussed young earth creationism and, and then God's determinism and man's free will and, and moral responsibility, that kind of deal. And, and, and the point of this is not to map all that out. By the way, we actually have done full episodes on determinism. So in season three, we did a whole episode on interdeterminism mm-hmm. somewhere around episode seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, somewhere in there uh, in season three. So we actually like, break all that down and you can go back and, and listen to it then. But um, any, any last things you guys want to say for this episode before we wrap up? I just want to say that um, for young earth creation, if you're interested and you don't know what it is, there is a ton of good resources uh, like answers in Genesis, ICR, Chuck Missler's Genesis studies. So if it's something you're curious about, there's a look it up because there's yeah. a lot of information. And ICR is the Institute of creation research. Yeah. And I really, re- I really recommend um, Kitty Ferguson's the fire in the equations 
which is not a religious book, but it's science and about the implications of, is there something behind the formulas that we see in, in the universe? So, yeah. And there's, um, Michael Behe and Stephen Meyer who both have a lot of books on, um, I, I don't think they're six day creationists, but on, um, irreducible complexity and some of those sorts of ideas. It's also really helpful, Craig, you mentioned that you were taught one way and then changed your mind. Um, it's really helpful to read authors who had believed one way and then and mm-hmm. then changed and why they changed. So it's not just they were always taught that because then confirmation bias can set in. Um, now, that goes both ways, right? Former Christians who are no longer. But those are always really interesting reads. Uh, cool. All right. So we're going to wrap up with that episode. We're going to continue this topic with other beliefs uh, in episode two. So hope you enjoyed the fireside chat. We'll see you for the next one.